0: The Otor MXGP Pro Taper podcast comes to you again from Grand Prix, and this time Udavada in Sweden, where we ask Fly Racing's Jason Thomas on a flying visit from the USA and RFX KTM Sean Simpson about AMA Pro National and MXGP tracks, as well as discussing the death of the Privateer. Later in the recording, Paul Malin checks in to talk round 16 of 18 that saw a debut winner, more Glenn Koldenhoff excellence, and Jorge Prado dispatches MX2 finally. As ever, don't forget the protable.com is the place to go for bars, grips, bits, and much more. So back in the Sean Simpson camper. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Let's talk a bit about being here in Uddevalla for the Grand Prix of Sweden first. Jason, you said you walked the track. Um, what kind of thoughts? I mean, coming from, you know, the U.S. national series where, you know, we think... There's a lot of similarity with the tracks especially the preparation over there what are your kind of impressions of this place because this is kind of as old and uh old school uh, if you like as it comes
1: well i think uh we got very lucky with the weather uh typically it looks like it's very hard here it's slippery and deceiving uh, but there's a lot of moisture in it right now and it looks like the riders can be more aggressive than normal so we'll see how that progresses throughout the weekend but yeah the rains on thursday and friday seem to help quite a bit so far in terms of layout and stuff like that is it kind of
0: what you expected from a you know a grand prix track i know you came to Lommel, which mm-hmm. is, is is very unique i guess you could say yeah. um but
1: yeah the, the layout is yeah it's outdoor motocross ride but i'm more impressed with the backdrop it's uh, just such a unique layout and it's not something you would see very often in the u.s regardless of where you were uh, to see all the hillside and all the fans there and uh, has a very different feel. It doesn't have the, the man-made feel of a GP like Assen or somewhere where it doesn't have all this unique landscape everywhere.
0: Sean, what, what's your feelings coming to this race? Do you think it's something where you you know you can, is it a track you can embrace or is it one where you think, oh, if I don't get a start, I'm gonna be nowhere?
2: I think with what Jason just touched on there, you know, the, the way that the ground's actually been prepared this weekend, you know, with Mother Nature's rain and the way they ripped it all last night, that really opens the track up to be a lot more technical and um, create a lot more lines-passing opportunities. Um, I've been here plenty of times, um, half the times I'd say it's been as it is now with the rain. You know, we are in Sweden, it does rain quite a, quite a lot here. But I've been here as well in, in the middle of the summer where it's baked solid. We come here, there's nearly dust on a Thursday, they water it as much as they can but the water just doesn't penetrate the, the stones at all, it just sort of runs off and then you've got a real slick one-line, you know, barely even a groove in any of the corners to sort of catch, and that creates for a really one-line racetrack. So I'm really looking forward to this weekend. I feel like it's going to be right up my street, and, uh, you know, just hopefully we can we can get out the start, which is always important, but if you don't, I think there's still going to be places out there to pass.
0: The fact that we're sat in your camper and we're parked in a quarry says a lot about the setting <laughs> of this track. I mean, Odevala's kind of time-honoured. I mean, Jason... If if a, a guy, you know, from the U.S. National Series came over and saw this place, would have to. I mean, I still remember Thomas Covington's face. I think it was two thousand and thirteen when we went to Arco de Trento, um, and he looked utterly bewildered by you know that kind of Italian narrow, rippled, stony, hard pack. Um, you know what? What would someone like Eli Tomac think? You know, arriving here the first day. Do you think it would be a big culture shock, or not, not that much?
1: Yeah, I think the way the track is now, not so much. The way that Sean was describing the track, that would be very, very difficult. Uh, we don't face conditions like that very often in the US. There's so much added soil to make to add traction and soften the tracks in the US that they would never ride a track where it's that hard and that slippery and one-lined. Um, the promoters in the US have just decided they don't want a lot of variety. so. I think the, the backdrop, you know, a rider like EY is he's raced uh, Latvia, he's raced Twitchenthal. so he's, he's worldly enough to handle the surroundings, but I think the, that unique of a soil layout would, would challenge a lot of U.S. riders because they, they ride the same soil, you know, day in and day out, and then they go to a race with the same exact soil that they've been practicing on all week as well.
0: You know, is there an opinion maybe of the guys who look at some of the Grand Prix in the U.S. that, you know, the, 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 the diversity and the, vari- the variety of the tracks is something that's positive or it's something that would be a, a nightmare to tackle?
1: I think it's intimidating because I think the last six or seven years of uh, Motocross of Nations have clued the U.S. into uh, maybe some shortcomings as far as diversity of their skill set and how to tackle a track that's not what they're used to Uh, so I I think more than ever before for a rider to make the move to MXGP they would think twice because I think they everyone views it as much more difficult than maybe they did 10 years ago do you think
0: Sean like the standardization a little bit of US tracks I mean do you think in Grand Prix we look at it a little bit with envy? Um, or is it a case of it's that that same kind of dirt that same kind of preparation it would be something that's f- too formulate compared to the stuff you have to deal with
2: i think it's it's quite strange really because you know the saying the grass is always greener on the other side for us certainly if we're riding you know two three grand prix in a row where it's real dusty hard pack the takeoffs are slick you know and there's no traction you know you're you're trying to get set up all weekend just to try and find something you can you feel comfortable with then you think oh the guys in the u.s those tracks look ace you know there's ruts on the jumps there's lines there's you know you can go 30 40 yards further around a corner but still make a pass on the outside you know that's the type of things that i think whoa i'm really i'm into all that stuff but if you started racing them thing them tracks weekend week out be the same you know that could get a little bit boring as well and I think you know a world championship or or a a motocross championship should test every skill set and I think that's where over here as much as we might complain about it sometimes you know just going off the back of what Jason said you know it's made me think you know we've got really deep sand we've got really hard slick tracks we've got deeply ripped tracks you know it is maybe more of a general overall you know guy who's going to win the championship out of those conditions.
0: Just moving on to a different topic uh, before, you know, you get getting changed to go out for free practice here in Udibala. Um, Privateers now. I mean, we've seen, you know, MSGB Gates have always been, I've written before, it's more elitist. You know, you've got like an approved entry list of teams. Um, you know, it's difficult for privateers to, to make it to a Grand Prix. There's almost zero benefits, more of a speculate to accumulate kind of philosophy. The idea you can get a good result maybe for the next year or get you a ride or a little bit of a better personal deal it's that kind of you know i guess as well as a sporting ambition that's the motivation to do it um you know just first off from from your mxgp perspective i mean do you think the days of a privateer are pretty much numbered Is, is it possible to even go racing outside of a satellite team set up now
2: yeah, I think it, it's it is tricky. Um, you know, obviously I've been in that situation for the last, you know, number of years and it's it's one of those one of those things where at the end of the day it's a guy on a bike with an engine dialed in suspension going around a motocross track and if you, you bear it back to the basics of the sport, you know, you don't need a fancy truck to win your a race. But it's becoming more apparent that you do need the parts of your bike to be working properly. And that comes from people working within the team, suspension technicians, engine guys, you know, traction control, ECU, all of the sort of electronic management stuff that we have on the bikes these days, that is better in the factory teams. So a guy who turns up at at maybe, you know, a race in the back of his Vito van with a pop-up and and goes out to race, then, you know, to get in the points in the top 15 is gonna be pretty tough for him. A guy who's going to be able to just do a season privateer-wise and be able to, you know, stick it in the top ten or win GPs or get podiums, the, it's, it's really tough these days because if you look at the line, there's, there's more than ten, you know, I've done the math exactly, but there's more than ten factory rides out there. If you take your Husqvarna's, KTM's, Kawasaki's, Honda's, you know, we've got at least two of each of those.
0: But there's also probably double that in terms of actual guys with Grand Prix winning experience or at least podiums.
2: Exactly. And and that's the thing that's just stacking this field out at the moment. And you know, we're in a situation with the age rule where by next year you've got, you know, five or six, eight real good guys coming out of M X two again and and that's you know, that's ramming the M X G P class which is great but then the rides aren't there for everyone so you're getting guys that are capable of maybe putting it in the top 10 but the equipment that they're on is maybe less and then and they can't perform how they really should so it's a bit of a skewed view on how some riders are performing these days.
0: The irony is that you could have a full gate of you know 40 good riders, Grand Prix riders with Grand Prix experience but you know it's almost very much, it's probably never been more of a survival of the fittest if you like, you know that kind of philosophy whereby you're not good enough Maybe you're not expensive enough or cheap enough, then you're not gonna make the cut because the first Grand Prix of the Year is gonna be in Argentina. So it's a major budget to get there and with twenty Grand Prix in two thousand and twenty that's it's just uh you know, unrealistic if you wanna do the whole season.
2: I think there's a lot of guys as well, you know that, you know, especially if you're in a, a privateer-based team, I'm not talking about the guy that turns up in his camper or motorhome and does one or two select GPs. If you're in a privateer-based team, you've got the whole winter, you save up your money, your resources, you know, you get ready and you go to the first round, you know, in Argentina or wherever that may be. As the season dwindles on, you know, if you're not in the top 10 or the top 12 or your, your, you know, your goals that you've set for yourself, then you you don't decide to go to the the you know the the Shanghai the China the Indonesia ones because there's just no real benefit of going now um you know it's it's a tricky situation to be in whereby you know the championship position is what you're after but it's a cost versus reward thing now and you know the European ones most people can get in their camper van or a van and drive to them keeps the costs really low and you know that's maybe the benefit that you know the US series has got you know anyone can jump in a van and go but it's a hell of a lot further than it is in Europe but still you can make that happen. And at the end of the day, you can walk out of that track on a Sunday evening with a little bit of, or a Saturday evening, with a little bit of money in your pocket.
0: JT, I mean, I know it's, it's, a, it's a vast topic and there's, there's gray areas, there's the have, the have-nots, but I mean, what's kind of your take on how things are happening in the nationals sort the of privateer scene?
1: Is it getting harder all the time? Yeah, so I will go back to maybe 12 years ago, maybe 13, uh, there was a lot of money to be made even for privateers. Uh, companies that were involved from OEMs to yeah even the smaller sponsors had money to spend and they were heavily involved and in giving back. Uh, then there was a big recession in the U.S. that um, crippled a lot of companies and uh, really hurt the economy for on every level. Well the first step for every sponsor at that point was to say okay all of that stops. We're not no privateer points or contingencies or bonuses or any of that and uh it's really still recovering it's it's better you know when i stopped racing in 2012 it was all that was done completely finished so it was really difficult to to make it and i when i so when i stopped i was like okay this isn't (laughs) any good anyway so no problem uh but it's still in a recovery process where companies are still hesitant to spend money because they remember 10 years ago how bad it was and they we're just trying to, you know, stay in business. So it's getting better guys like Ben Wame and guys that are capable of top fifteen and top ten on a good day. Um, you talk to them and the OEMs are a little bit more active and they're finding some monies and, and ways to get back, but it's still nowhere near as good as it was, say, two thousand six, seven. It was it was really good back then. You could you could make decent money and not even be on a factory supported team.
0: Is it tough also for you guys to think, you know, coming towards the the twilight of your career I mean you mentioned stopping in 2012 I mean or 30, 31 next year 32 uh, yeah, uh, next, next, next year so you know almost to have the circumstances perhaps take you away from the highest level rather than an injury or a lack of motivation or something mm-hmm. like that I mean you know it must be hard to, to, to see circumstances around you conspire against you almost really
2: yes yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky and you know I remember when I, when my season sort of got kick-started, or my career got kick-started rather, you know, that was in 08. So that was just around the time where there was guys coming off the back of some really good years and that's when it sort of really started taking a downturn and it was tough. I was in a fortunate position that I'd signed a factory deal in MX2 for then. So I got through the first couple of years not really noticing too much on what had happened. But after I came out of that, it was quite clear that, you know, things were tough and deals were harder to get. You know, money was harder to earn, bonuses were harder to have, you know, just anyway. And that's kind of been the recurring process throughout, you know, the rest of my career up until today, where, you know, looking for a deal for next year, it's just, it's tough to try and, you know, find a team out there that's that's motivated, first of all, to, to commit to the whole championship. You know, it's 18, 19, 20 races now we're running. And, this, you know, these flyaway races, you know, trying to, to give us material to get inside the top 10 and it's just it's really you know it's just really tough to go and find sponsors out there you know trying to to look at different options of trying to get people on board that's not really motocross based or you know cuz all the motocross you know companies are kind of exhausted anyway um and yeah, it's it's tricky but it doesn't it doesn't make me think oh you know this is enough for me now i still feel like i want to race and i want to perform and i still feel like i've got more in me so i'm kind of like torn between the two things of you know someone telling me look there's nothing out there or it's pretty much done to me thinking well no it's not because i can still make this work
0: do you think that the the elitism factor is something that's determined by kind of the promoters or do you think it's just uh, the, the financial constraints around like the industry or the market or you know it's just it's just a way that modern sport is going you know I mean, it, does seem, it doesn't seem to be there's you know, many the sports are fighting for TV coverage, for internet coverage, that whole scene is changing in terms of broadcast and exposure, It's um it must be hard to get your head around the best angle to take sometimes, you know, do you, as a rider, do you have to be more of a marketing guy as well to just to, to project your own image?
2: I think that's a major part of it these days, you know, social media has been huge in the last few years of, you know, getting yourself out there, not just on the track getting the results but being a good guy, you know, exposing yourself and your sponsors online as well and you, know, you look at guys like Dean Wilson in America who's just you know, just I don't know where he comes up with his ideas, but you know, those things just you know, people, you know, hit hit the like button, they hit the follow button, you know, that just goes back, all his sponsors and it's just getting the image out there and, and getting the sort of coverage that people are looking for and you know, a few years ago that was, you know, en- enough just to get results on track and just be this guy who went away back to his, you know, training camp at home and just didn't say nothing till the next week. But now it's all about, you know, exposing yourself nearly as more off of the track than it is on the track and
0: Would you say that's the case, J T? I mean, from fly racing's perspective, because I mean you've got enough athletes in the US, you know, maybe you know, you'll have a Zach Osborne who's going for a championship and maybe you've got a quota of guys who are, you know, in that ten to fifteen bracket.
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly important. Um, you're theoretically you're hoping for the the complete package. You know, for us right now it's Ken Roxon and, and Cincerillo seem to be the two that are the marketing dreams for everyone. You know, uh, really well well spoken. The results are there, they're winning, huge social media following. Uh, and then you have the complete opposite where tomac is winning but he's almost non-existent social media uh he if he didn't ever have to do another interview ever again <laughs> he they would probably be too soon right so there's both um but yeah it's it's taken a turn that way if you go back a long time ago to like jeff stanton never did interviews he was not a nice guy at the track by any means um but he was winning everything you know i think that's changed, and riders have to approach it a bit differently now because if you're winning, great. You can, you're can. Ui Tomac, no problem. You don't have to talk to anybody. But if you're not and you're getting 10th, there's a lot of value to be had by the other side. Like Dean, like Dean Wilson is a perfect example. Companies are clamoring to sponsor him because, not necessarily because he got 8th or 5th or 10th on the weekend, but all the other things, the YouTube videos he's doing and all of the younger kids that are... 13 that are watching they love that stuff and now they want to do whatever dean is doing because of the video like winning is great and if you can do both that's the sensorial roxon great thing they have but everyone else needs to find ways to add value to their to their name as well
0: sure i mean you've got to head out soon so just to sort of try and put some sort of wrap on this subject let's take a case study of somebody like max anstey who's won a Grand Prix moto this year, he's already, there's been a press release issued that he's not going to be riding for a standing construct KTM, the official satellite team for KTM next year. In your opinion, both of you, I mean, do you think Max is a guy, you know, in his situation is still has a lot to offer, 26 I think he is, he's not very old, I mean, he's still young comparatively. Um, could he go to the US and make it as a privateer? Could he have his own setup? Sean, do you reckon he could maybe do something by himself or, or generate something around him in in MHGP or is his, is his window, is his chances limited?
2: It's tough, Max is a, a good mate of mine um, he lives just along the road from me in Belgium and Max is a, the type of guy who, you know, you wouldn't mind me saying that he doesn't like getting his hands dirty personally, you know, he's very very into his into his sport, very strict training, nutrition you know, being at the track on time, you know, going about his training during the week you know, to an absolute T, for him to start then, you know, really coming down a peg two or three to a privateer setup where maybe he's, you know, washing his own practice bike or you know doing some of the things that I have to do, that would be a shock to the system for Max. And uh, you know, it's not really how he goes about his job. And you know that's that's fine. You know, I I've fell into that rut because I I am capable of doing that and being able to do that, but. That doesn't make me think, you know, that was the right thing for me to do. Maybe I should have said, no, I can't do that, guys. You know, you need to give me the support and whatever else. But, you know, for those things, you know... So
0: what you're saying is irrespective of the era, a privateer is a certain breed, perhaps?
2: I think it is, yeah. You know, and and that's the way I was brought up with my dad, you know. He was a privateer throughout his whole GP career, 10 years, just on his own, in a van with my mum, you know, and... (laughs) That was pretty much it. My mum done the pit boarding, the cooking, and everything else that she could do. You know, bringing up me and my brother and my dad. He went out and done the racing, and they managed to scrape by and have ten years of you know good fun and you know life on the road. But you know, never made a a bean at the whole thing. <laughs> but they wouldn't have changed it for the world. You know, times have changed. You know, you need to be able to to afford to do it these days. There's a lot more costs involved. But, you know, going back to what you're saying about Max, it is a tough situation to be in. The guy's obviously got huge potential. You know, on his day, he's a podium guy. You know, he showed in Lommel that he should have probably won the GP that day. A guy like that being now in a, in a situation where he's not got a deal is pretty tough to, to handle, you know, for people looking in from the outside. Imagine what he's thinking yeah. sitting on the couch at home now with an injury that he sustained in Lommel. He's thinking, what have I got to do here to get a break? But it's it seems to be as shrewd as that.
1: To me it's uh, shocking that he doesn't have a deal for one, to be able to win a moto convincingly the way and not have a, not just one team but several teams wanting to sign him is, is crazy to me because if it was in the US, if you're winning a moto and it's not muddy or it's not some weird situation, you're just good enough to win a moto, you're going to be beating people away from the truck to go out for the second moto because they're going to be sticking a contract in your face. So I don't know the situation. I don't know Max really at all. Uh, his first experience with the US wasn't very good, mm-hmm. but that was a different time and you know, different family situation. Everything was different for him. If I were him, I would be on the phone to America because the level he's capable of riding at, he would, he would find success in America. At Supercross, maybe not, maybe not. But the riding that I saw at Lomo, he can come anywhere near that level He's he's much better than many of the riders that have good rides and paying rides in the U.S. right now.
0: Could he even do you think it's possible for him to throw a bike in the back of a truck and try supercross or you know? It would...
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to say where his skill set is for supercross. Um, supercross is continually evolving, and that the level is very high. as As difficult as it's been for us in uh, motocross of nations, and uh, I think the MXGP level is incredibly high. The supercross level is equally as high for the U.S. right now it's very very impressive just me watching them doing it for 16 years and I watch what they're doing now it's they're they're really good <laughs> they're really good at it and much better than even five years ago so uh if nothing else I think Ansty honestly could get a a really quality deal for outdoors only because most of the riders in the U.S. now are trying to avoid riding the outdoors. If they could get good money to race Supercross only and someone could fill in, like a Frederick Noren, there are opportunities like that. And injuries, obviously, as well, that's, you know, unforeseen. Um, but, yeah, I can't imagine there are not teams that would look at someone who's capable of winning an MXGP moto and would say yeah we would take him yeah. when someone's injured or whatever so well
0: hopefully you get sorted out Sean you've got to get ready to go out to the track so thanks again for your time JT good to see you at Grand yeah. Prix come yes, over nice. again and then um, I guess we'll catch up in the nations where you hopefully you won't be too uh, <laughs> yeah. down as Steve,
1: Steve likes to uh, you know point out repeatedly every year you can't uh, you can't book travel very well so you're missing Shanghai That's what I've learned this weekend. Well, there's actually a British Airways pilot strike, so there's another (laughs) obstacle that's been thrown in.
0: So there you go. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Post Grand Prix here in Sweden. Paul, Paul Malin, of course, TV commentator, the voice of MXGP. Thanks for joining us again here to dissect this race, uh, the second in a weekend. It feels like these things are flying by. Let's talk about a few of the major talking points from today, Paul. Jorge Prado. MX2 World Champion, Glenn Koldenov winning his second Grand Prix in a weekend, an injury for Roman Feber it seems uh, typical, just when I interviewed him the day before last about the motocross of nations. Um, from what I'm hearing, it potentially is a broken femur, but by the time people listen to this, I guess it's going to be confirmation of what the damage is uh, that 4 while leading, I think, the second moto. Uh, Jeffrey Hurlings return. A couple of things, you know, that went on today. What's kind of your, your standout item from, from Sunday here in Udavala?
3: I would say, ahead of all of that, Tom Vial. Good shout. Miss Vial completely. Winning the MX2 Grand Prix with two second places. 22 years, one week after his dad won his third and final Grand Prix, 17th of August 1997 at Narutha in Belgium.
0: Listen, Jorge Prado is MX2 world champion, but you are MX champion of stats, I have to say. (laughs) I'm impressed. But uh, Tom rode brilliantly. come back i mean he finished 32nd last weekend in imola so he's improved that by 31 places this weekend but do you think that victory maybe came as a consequence of others mistakes
3: you know it's uh you've got to put yourself in a position right from the very first moment there's been times where jorge prado has won races when other people around him faltered picked up positions where other people faltered and um you know the fact that he fell on the first lap of or the second lap of race two and as a result we saw immediately the left side of the handlebar the the clutch lever was up the handguard was up obviously put him in an uncomfortable position and as a result, he couldn't sort of do anything until the end of the race, you know? Yeah. Everybody got away from him. But he rolled either. the whole whole
0: race without a clutch. Yeah. So he said by the time he got into it. And and by the end, where he was almost catching Adam Sterry, another good ride from him, by the way, yeah. fourth overall. Uh, you know, so it was 3 tenths of a second from making it 14 GP wins in a row.
3: Sure. And the streak ends at 13 in a row, um, which, you know, he's not going to get that opportunity again, certainly in MX2, because he goes up next year. He can't break that hurlings record. Um, He can't do that, Stefan Evert, 17 wins, you know, the the dubious 17 wins in a row we talked about last week. But he's had a good run, he was still on the podium, he came here to win the championship, he did that. Um, People were talking before the weekend, can't see anybody getting past uh, Prado this weekend. For him to not wrap up the championship in the first race meant that TKO had to win the first race and Prado had to be third. you know to win it at the very least or lower than third and everyone was saying yeah well you know what he's only lost two races and the two races that he didn't win he finished second well today he finished fourth <laughs> and yeah. got third overall so things change sometimes uh, things work out in mis- you know play out in mysterious ways but well, you it, can't it, it, take anything away from tom vial two no. solid rides two consistent rides the back end got away from him he was two laps away from winning his first race and the overall
0: it was a, another great weekend for Rebel KTM, but let's, you know, maybe some of the others dropped the ball. TKO, Thomas Gear not you know, almost. A race closest to home turf for him, not really performing. Iago Gertz as well mysteriously buried inside the pack. We know this particular circuit is a place where if you don't get a start, then you're going to be struggling. Uh, that was very much the case for those two riders today. But you you look at them and think, you know, is that world championship potential there? I mean, they're going to have to seriously up their game next season to, to get some sort of consistency going. Well, the best
3: TKO has ever finished here is six overall when we came here two, two years ago. And Prado was actually the only guy in MX2 that stood on the podium here in the lineup of riders. Uh, for yeah. this weekend because were one in 17, he's now in MXGP. So Jonas has been on the podium, he's now in MXGP. So from that side, only Prado lined up having stood on the podium here. Um, so, for, you know, but TKO, like you say, I think it's a track you either gel with or you don't. He didn't gel with it uh, two years ago, he didn't gel with it again. The thing that surprised me about Jago Kietza, I think, is he's been on the podium in Trentino and Russia. Hard packed, so rocky can... surfaces, but for some reason... This weekend, he was a million miles away from that kind of form, and um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. You know, um, is there some internal stuff going on? Are there, is he just struggling with setup at the moment? Is he thinking too much about third in the championship? There are a lot of questions there that are unanswered at the moment. And um, this weekend, he had a perfect opportunity to put some. More distance between himself and Vial and Jacoby. He did that on Jacoby because obviously picking up what looks like a knee injury in race two, the German. But um, especially after Vial didn't score last week and, and Jago Kietz re inherited that third place, all of a sudden, you know, the gap between um, Jago Kietz is seven points. You know, he's turned it around. He went 0 0 last week and all of a sudden he goes 2 2 and wins a GP, uh, Tom Vial. So
0: talk about bouncing back. We were saying there was something of a mystery going on with him and Yamaha. I mean, let's let's look at what happened in MSGP for those guys because Roman febra looked like he was you know, odds-on for a victory today. Uh, it's ended pretty tragically, has to be said. Uh, it could be his second broken leg of the year. I mean, that's that's uh, and devastating, of course, for Team France. Again, another setback for the second year in a row to their motocross of the nations ambitions, but. Arno Tonis, uh, Gautier to Portland, just looking, you know, a little off song in that mid-top-ten position. Jeremy Suo had a good comeback in the second moto to fifth place. Jeremy Suo, I-, I think, maybe the nicest man in motocross. Mm. We, uh, I just passed by the Rebel KTM morning there, you know, where the party's in full flow for, for Jorge Brado, of course. And there he was, you know, in the midst of it, standing out like a sore thumb in that Monster Energy Yamaha blue. Sure. Uh, just, like, congratulating everyone, shaking hands. Uh, you know, I-, I couldn't think of a better rider, really, or a more worthy rider to finish second in the world and and represent the sport and, you know, some of the values of this place.
3: Yeah, that's right. At the end of the day, we're we're all in this paddock for the same reason. You know, it's where we kind of make a living. You know, it's it's work for us. Everyone that's come out this weekend, they're here on a jolly. They're coming to support MXGP and the riders that line up behind the gate. But at the end of it all, you know, when the final flag is gone, the checkered flag is done, podiums are done, media uh, duties are finished everybody goes back to being normal human beings. And as you said, you, you don't get a bigger human than uh, Jeremy Seawer. Um You know, he's, he's just gone over there and like you say, just, having, just talking to people, congratulating people, all that kind of thing. Um, and I'm sure people will do the same for him if the shoe was on the other foot. uh, But that's also part of the camaraderie that we have within the paddock, you know. Everyone's packing up at the moment. Um, You know, the Rockstar guys, the Yamaha guys, Kawasaki guys. I'm sure they got the memo that said, you know, from around 7, 7.30 on Sunday night, come by, have a drink. And at some stage they will, when everything's packed and ready to go, they're all showered. And, you know, they're either turning in for the night or leaving first thing in the morning. Um, It's just
0: how our little world revolves, you know. So, Fairbro, bad luck for him. Uh, did you think he was overly pushing? I mean, that didn't seem such a... Was it a freak accident?
3: Yeah, we caught it on TV, just the back end of it. And I think he was forced to go around a back marker and use a different line. And it looked like, as he came out of the left-hander, I don't think there was anything wrong with that part of the racetrack. Um, you know, some people have heard Sketchy being thrown around again. That just seems to be the the phrase everybody uses when they don't like the track, you know, when it's hard, when it's slick, whatever. But where he fell, there was plenty of traction. There were a multitude of lines from left to right. He, I think he was slightly unsighted, you know, or just put off by the, the back marker. He had to take a different line. Uh, it wasn't the back marker's fault in any way. Uh, just holding a line, you know, here I am, just go around me. And it seemed as if, as he got on the gas, the back end just came around on him. Um, and the bike was kind of coming around on him and he was the bike was already then laid over at 45 degrees and whether it was panic or instinct or whatever, but he then, it looked like he put his leg down, his left leg. And I remember watching it on the replay, the first replay, and I just thought, "Oh, that left leg. Because I wasn't sure if, you know, it looked initially like he was gonna lay the bike down on his leg, but then what happened, it looked like it dug in, his leg dug in into the ground. Maybe there was a rut there or something. And then as the bike was coming in to land, looked like the wheels gained traction and flipped and put him into a high side situation and flung him over the top. But I think the damage was done on impact when he hit the leg in the ground. But immediately uh, when he'd stopped rolling, he clutched that left that left leg. Um, it's the same as Argentina really, where yeah, the, yeah. the right sort of foot went into the ground yeah, and caused that so, fracture. So I don't know, I don't know. You know, it might be a femur. Um, it might even be hip related we don't know um you know the initial thing was yeah femur but then the um obviously he's gonna go to he's gone to a hospital and they will diagnose him and we'll get a true valuation. And you like know, I say, bye later tonight or tomorrow morning. We'll of course, all know.
0: Uh, full thoughts with him and the Monster Energy sure. Yamaha team. Um, on the other side of the emotional scale, you had Glenn Koldenhoff. Um, fantastic performance in the second moto. I get even in the first under pressure from February taking that victory. But to pass Pauls Jonas on that last lap, Paul and win the Grand Prix. Um, I asked him in the press conference, what's been the difference? You know, the last three races, re- this surge of confidence and form and speed tied in with the starts has, has made him pretty much... Well, almost unbeatable
3: it's been a strange turnaround three podiums on the bounce and two wins in the last two gps um nobody expected it last week even tim mateys spoke to him in pit lane yesterday or in uh, skybox um and but he was obviously really pleased on what was a, a bittersweet last week a bittersweet weekend last weekend when uh, you know anstey ended up in hospital monticelli. and even monticelli couldn't ride and um, but to continue that, to come here with that same kind of confidence on hard pack, slick surfaces, uh, to, actually, you know what, the second start wasn't great. He was in around about six for uh, half the race, actually. And then uh, there was the stall moment from uh, paul Ann, uh, or a bobble. Then he found his way, you know, he just started working his way through. Of course, he was helped by a mistake from uh, Tonus with about six laps to go. Gave him a clear run at, um, Jonas. Yeah, we
0: had that incentive then, didn't we? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And then as well, you know, with uh, Fevre going out. But it was Geiser and, and Fevre that were, you know, sort of duking it out for the win. Geiser was in a winning Grand Prix position just before um, Fevre fell. And um, But Geiser, but uh, Koldenhoff, like I say, that pass on Jonas, he had to be clinical. He had to be decisive. He put himself right where he needed to. It was well executed and well-timed. And... Jonas kind of saw it last minute and thought, "Yep, I'm not getting involved because I know I can make the podium still from here. Yeah, Uh, it wasn't a gift, but um,
0: had he not done it there, I don't think he would have passed him. um, There would have been nowhere else. And it was final lap. Um, Continuing on the KTM theme, and I'd like to also expand it to again, Motocross of Nations with Team Holland. You know, an amazing weekend. Glenn Koldenov taking that victory. Roman de Muschdyk, if I can say that correctly, uh, being crowned EMX 250 European champion. Calvin Philandren finishing on the podium again in MX2. With a race win. With a race win, that's right. And Jeffrey Hurlings. Can I just say I was relieved in the first moto, not to begrudge Jeffrey any kind of speed or good fortune or whatever this year, because I think he deserves a break, uh, for want of a better word. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, but I was relieved when after about 20 minutes he started to back or they started to catch him a little bit so I thought if he can come back at 60 or 70% fitness whatever he says and like you know lead the pack like that it it really that says a lot it undermines the championship completely what everybody else has done you know everybody
3: talks about raising their game and you know we don't know that he was the benchmark last year and he won the qualifying race so we were already in trouble yesterday Uh, but so was he inevitably you know arm pump and whatever so we knew he was going to be good for 20 minutes and um it was the same story today. He, Jeffrey sits there and says, yeah, no expectations, under no illusions, but you know what? Put me behind the gate. I'm going to put everything on the line. I don't care, even if I fall, which he did in race one. And that was, that was a lazy crash because his arms were solid. He couldn't hold on. He was just trying to get through it. Um, and the unfortunate casualty of that was uh, Tonus. You know, and that probably cost him a podium, and it's cost him fourth in the championship at the moment. But, um, but good to see him line up for the second race. He always was going to anyway but it was a more measured performance from him. He even picked off Sear on the last lap, I think, to get himself into
0: uh, fourth position. um... And fair play for him for coming back at this Grand Prix. If memory serves me correctly, this is where he dislocated a shoulder and also ripped his left little finger to pieces. So, you know, he admitted it wasn't one of his fate, or he doesn't have the best memories at this track. Uh, But... You know, he, he came back with, I think, less than two weeks on the bike and, uh, you know, showed he he's, he's not a million miles away from being competitive.
3: Yeah, I spoke to Dirk Grubel last week and he said, uh, it's likely that it's going to be Turkey, the return, he needs more time on the bike. And last minute, they decided to throw him on a plane on Thursday. Um, I think he pushed her, actually. Yeah. From my understanding, he pushed KTM to be here. So And it might turn out to be the deciding factor later on in the season at the Motocross Nations, you know, that one extra race. This is where he finds out where he's at. You know, you can ride and train and do your motos on the training ground, but there is no substitute. I had Jason Thomas from Fly Racing in with me this weekend, and he said as well, there is no substitute for being behind the gate, getting those uh, gate drops, the adrenaline, uh, the anxiety, the nerves, the everything. Having people going around you on the first corner, pushing to get away from people rather than just pushing against the clock. And um, and I think this will be a crucial moment. Yet yeah, it wasn't on the podium, didn't win a race. But it'll be a crucial moment and maybe the one that edges the Netherlands over the line in in, uh, Assen for the nations, potentially. Which, at the moment, they've got four riders named. You know, they're looking very strong on paper. They were always looking strong on paper with Glenn, with Jeffrey. And I think before this weekend, when you put Wallanderen and uh, Van der Moosdyk on the shortlist, I think the Dutch Federation have looked at it and gone, we'll see what happens this weekend. Don't want to put any pressure on uh, on the young Kawasaki rider, don't want to interfere with him potentially winning or losing a European title. Get it out of the weekend. So he went and won the title in European it? 250, Van der Moschdijk. and then all of a sudden, Valandrum, Valandrum, the Valandrum goes race. and wins a race and gets on the podium. Who would you take? The strongest sand rider, and I think watching the Dutch championship
0: is Van der Moestike the strongest sand rider. Some this people said is, to me, is not it an too MX2, big? It's not an MX2 level. I mean, I know there's probably marginal difference in the speed or lap times, but it's...
3: He it. rode MX2 in Portugal and finished six overall and, and led a race. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the bikes. The only problem is, you know, some people saying, excuse the noise, because we are outside today. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Well we're in Sweden, so it didn't have to worry about losing the light. No, no, no. <laughs> but the but the thing with uh, Ronan Van Van Mostark is some people saying, is it too early for a motocross the nations for him, especially one as big as the Netherlands where they will be home favourites? You follow football, you if somebody's good enough, they'll perform. Um, but is it a risk too far? Maybe
0: Calvin has just edged it. Also like hedging your bets if, if if it comes down to the MX2 result and, and you know when the Mushtine makes a rookie error, like you know, we've seen TMS team USA do a Blake Bagger in the past. It's uh you know that's that's a lot to carry, I think. You know, Cooper Webb admitted that he was haunted by the you know 2016 nations at Majora for the following season. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a big ask, I think, especially for your first time on home turf.
3: Yeah, and I think you know there are people in both corners that would be pushing to get You know either van der moesteig or valandran onto the gate and ride that nations i don't know it's a tough one to call both guys are riding good both riders ride well in the sand um just look at the dutch championship results that might help us out but you know again valandran would have missed a few of those rounds um if he's been racing them this year even you know with hrc
0: might just be a gp only uh season for him paul as ever thanks ever so much for the insight uh, time to get packed up after two GPs in a row, just uh, Turkey and the Grand Prix of China to go. And then, of course, uh, on to Asen. So many, many thanks.
3: And